0: Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning. I hope you're ready today. I hope you realize this too. If you were in here when you heard Pastor Seth starting the service and say that wasn't the worship set they practiced and that our drummer wasn't here because... Uh, he had to rush to the hospital for his newborn baby, and uh, other people aren't here. No, not because the baby's being born. Baby's already born. Some emergency sick, so we're going to be praying for them. But I was just thinking of the passage from the Apostle Paul, who reminds us, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against angels and principalities and dark forces. And there's, there's a world at work that didn't want you to be here today, and didn't want the service to happen uh, for lots of reasons, and uh, I'm just going to pray against that darkness this morning as we open up the scriptures. I'm going to pray that God opens our hearts as we open the word. We get into this new series. I believe God wants to speak to us that he's got a word for us from this letter we're going to be in in First Corinthians for a while. So if you've got a little ribbon in your Bible, if you use an old school paper Bible, you don't roll really a scroll out here, but you don't got the app, you're going to mark that. We're going to be there for a little while in First Corinthians. But let me pray before we open that up this morning. Sound good? All right. I'm going to do it whether you say that or not. So let's pray. Father, thank you that we get to come before your throne. And that you tell us that we can come with boldness before your throne of grace. And so I want to boldly come before you right now and ask that you touch every life that's here today. God, I pray that people would be impacted by you, whether that's through a handshake in a lobby, through a word that I say, through your spirit, just speaking into their ear. A word, a brief word of encouragement, a rebuke, whatever it is you desire to do, God. I pray you'd stir up in our hearts and change us. Don't let us go through the motions, just be glad we went to service today. God, do something in our hearts. Speak through my heart. My, my heart right now and God I pray you'd fellowship with me as I speak to speak to these people speak for you and God I, I just pray you'd show up and do something I couldn't even ask right now do beyond what we could ask or imagine in Jesus name I pray amen, amen. well today is Super Bowl Sunday if you didn't know that hello this is America glad you're here today um, do we got any, any fans here today of the New England Patriots anybody a real fan all right I got some real Our people are booing them I love that I'm such a hater uh, any Rams fans couple. You had to pick a team. They're not the Patriots, so here we go. What about the Saints? Any Saints fans? I'm sorry. Who did They are God's team. It's a biblical name, the Saints. And so. and some of you are just going to watch commercials, eat wings, whatever. Uh, my daughter, she's 13 years old, gave me incredible wisdom last night. We were at dinner together, and she said, hey, don't hate on the Patriots too much. People really love their football. And you want to offend him? offend him with Jesus stuff. And I thought, she's 13, this is amazing. Uh, so I won't say too much, but I do not love the Patriots, I will say that. But whether you love or hate the Patriots, you have to admit that the quarterback we're going to see play today is arguably the greatest of all time, certainly one of the best quarterbacks of all time. Yep. All right, enough, enough out of y'all. I see the jerseys, I see the jerseys. Here's some stats for you. 17 seasons as a starter for Tom Brady the Patriots, never had a losing season, has led them to nine Super Bowls, as one of only two quarterbacks to win the Super Bowl in their first season as a starter, one of only two players to win five Super Bowls, the only one to do it with one team, four Super Bowl MVPs, that's the most ever by a player, three league MVPs, the oldest player to ever, have ever won the regular season MVP, and that was at 40 years old, amen, by all the 40-year-olds, <laughs> He's been selected to 14 Pro Bowls, has led his team to more division titles than any other quarterback in NFL history, 16. The winningest quarterback in NFL history, the only quarterback to reach 200 regular season wins. But here's the interesting thing. It almost never happened. On his JV team, he was the backup quarterback for a team that was 0-8 and couldn't score a touchdown. When he got to college, he was a seventh stringer at the University of Michigan, looking at one of the guys that played with him today. Had to hire a sports psychologist to help him with frustration and anxiety. Even when he became the starter, split duties for the first part of his last year with a guy named Drew Henson. I bet most of you never even heard of that guy. And then when he came out of college, was not thought of as a a real high-ranking prospect and was drafted, there's only seven rounds in the NFL draft, was drafted in the sixth round, 199th overall out of 254 players taken arguably today the greatest player in NFL history there were almost 200 guys drafted before him just in his draft class a story of almost untapped potential now it's fun to talk about who's the greatest of all time and I know in our community we're a little bit more of a basketball community than we are a football community I know we got football fans here but it's kind of like the off season for some of you and it's fun to talk about who's the greatest of all time and probably one of the more fun barbershop conversations is who's the greatest of all time at basketball. And I bet many of you have an opinion on that based on your school allegiance and your era of growing up. And so if you're real old school, Oscar Robertson has the, you know, the greatest stats, Wilt Chamberlain was dominant, and you start to go through, you get a little bit past that. Like When I was a kid, I remember Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Akeem Olajuwon, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, nowadays, you know, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, LeBron James, and you probably have in your mind who you think is the greatest of all time. One time, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, if you don't know who Kareem is, Lou Alcindor, also known as, he scored more points in the NBA than any player in NBA history, all-time points leader. Played for the LA Lakers, made the Skyhook famous. He was asked when they were retiring his jersey as a Laker, who's the greatest player you ever played with or against? He played for 20 seasons. He played with Dr. J, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, many of the guys that are going to be in that argument about who's the greatest of all time, Larry Bird, like he played with those guys, against those guys. He was asked, who's the greatest player you ever played with or against? And he said a guy that I bet most of you have never heard of, I bet a couple of you might know the answer. His name was Earl Manigault. Never played one second in the NBA. He was a school, schoolyard street legend. Problem was, he averaged 24 points a game in high school, But got involved with the wrong crowd, got involved in doing drugs, and never made it to the NBA. Got offered to play with the Globetrotters at one time, but he shunned that. They said about him, legend has it, that he could dunk a basketball with one hand, catch it with the other hand, and dunk it back through. He said that wasn't true. But they said that he could make change on a backboard. So a backboard's about 13 feet high. They put a dollar bill on top of a backboard. He could go up there, grab the dollar bill, and leave four quarters. The guy was only six foot one. That's about a 60-inch jump, by the way. But he never made it. Earl Manigault one time was being interviewed in the New York Times, and I want to read you a quote by him. He says, "For every Michael Jordan, there's an Earl Manigault. We all can't make it. Somebody has to fail. I was the one." Earl Manigault's story is a story of wasted potential. So, I told you two stories so far. One of almost untapped potential. And one of wasted potential. But here's the reality. I mean, this is I mean, I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, but we're at church, we're not here to talk about sports, right? I love sports, we're not here to talk, I love Jesus more. We're gonna talk about Jesus today. So let me transition this and say this. Is it possible to have untapped potential as a Christian or as a church? And today I want to ask you this question as we open this letter up to this church in Corinth, is what makes or breaks a great church? Because I'll tell you, to be candid with you, I don't want to go to a normal church. I don't want to go to an average church. I want to be part of a great church. What makes or breaks a great church? Is it possible to have untapped or wasted potential? And so as we open up this book, I want you to have those images in your mind. Tom Brady, Earl Manigault, almost untapped or wasted potential. Because here's the reality about the Church of Corinth. They had every potential to be one of the greatest world-impacting churches of all time. We're going to read in just a moment a verse that says, you've been enriched in every way. Another verse that says, you've been given every spiritual gift. But here's the reality. They were a mess so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at today, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to lay the foundation for this series and look at verses 1 through 17 in chapter 1. We're going to go chapter by chapter through the book of 1 Corinthians. Here's what I want you to know about the church at Corinth. If you ever, if you ever go to plant a church and you're part of a team that's planting a church, you get the opportunity to name a church. Do not name it, the church of Corinth, Okay. Sometimes people name churches that. I'm sorry if you are part of a church that was named. If you want to name your church after a Bible church, name Thessalonians. Name it Philippians. Don't name it Corinth. Corinth was a mess, okay? Here's what you need to know about the church of Corinth. I'm going to tell you stuff about the culture and the city that they lived in. Their problem was not that they lived in a corrupt city. The problem was that corruption was in the church. I heard one Bible commentator say, the problem for the church in Corinth is not that there was a church in Corinth. It's that Corinth was in the church. And so here, if, just give you a perspective so you get an idea of their context and why we call this series Letters to R to You is because there's so many parallels to what's happening in this church to what's going on in our church. So here's what you need to know about the city that they're in. Big three things. First one is, if you wanted success, this was a great place to move to. Key trade routes went through this place. People moved there from all over the world. It was voted Forbes' top five places to live during the ancient days. Just kidding. But... It was it was a great place to live if you wanted to make money and be successful, and it was what we would call an upwardly mobile place. People would come and they'd move there, they'd live for a little while, and then they'd leave. Sound familiar? One of their false gods they worshipped was the god of success. Another one was sports. The Corinthian Games were second only to the Olympic Games. People would travel from all over the world to come and, and see the sports that were there. The third thing that they worshipped of their unholy trinity of worship of false gods was sex. I don't think I need to give you statistics on pornography in our community, but I'll just tell you about theirs. There was this temple of Aphrodite that overlooked the city of Corinth. The historians say at one time at a 1,000 temple prostitutes at once that would descend on the city in the evening to sell their bodies for religious worship. And so they've got the same unholy trinity of false gods they worship as we do, success, sports, sex. And then the topics that are covered that are written to this church Tell me if these aren't hot topics for us. Singleness, divorce and remarriage, marriage, sex, sexual sin in the church, the Lord's Supper. How do you relate with people that you don't like? What do you do when you're in arguments with people that are also Christians? It's those topics and many more that are in this book that we're going to look at over the next several months. And so that's why we called this series Letters to RDU. Can you read it with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll read the first nine verses right now to get started. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, and to our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then listen to this, verses four through nine, these words of praise. Knowing what we know about what's going to come and the problems that are going on in this church, they've got sins in their church that they tolerate that the world wouldn't even tolerate. And he says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called, into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, isn't it interesting, knowing what we know about what is to come in this book, that he says these words that are such glowing words of praise, did you, like, go ahead and skim through, again, verses 4 through 9, and see what's there. And it almost can read like, like, if you ever been driving in your car, and you, you knew there was a problem in your car, and you hear like, tick, 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 noise that's not supposed to be there, and so you turn the radio up, <laughs> or, you know, that maintenance light comes on on the dashboard, and you're like, a kid left a sticker, Whack, shoop, you know, I don't have to look at that. It almost reads like Paul's ignoring the problems in this church. Like, I thank God. How can you thank God for these people? Do you know what a mess they are? (laughs) But that's not what's happening. It's more like, I had a friend from Texas tell me a story the other day that he saw on the news in Texas. He's a hunter. And uh, he was talking about how there was this hunting blind in Texas. And so the guys that were going to this hunting blind saw a rattlesnake going underneath it. And so they got a forklift and they lifted it up. They do everything big in Texas, right? And so they got a forklift. They lift the thing up and there was a nest with 40 rattlesnakes. Underneath this hunting blind. Some of you are done now. You're just there now, I'm done. Paul wasn't ignoring the problem, he's actually exposing the problem in verses four through nine. Because if you look at verses four through nine, notice it doesn't have anything to do with any of the behavior of the Corinthians. This is all about God. In verse four, it starts off talking about you know what it's all about? It's all about God's grace. I give thanks to my God always for you because of, not because you're awesome. Because God's awesome, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Here's the reality. And laying the foundation for this book, exposing the problems of this church, it all starts with grace. This church started by grace, it all starts by grace, and here's the reality for us. If we're going to be a great church, for we're going to be the church that God intends for us to be, we must be a people that are gripped by God's grace. That's our first point today. That we must be a people that are gripped, maybe held, compelled by the grace of God. That it's engulfing our lives that we never get over the grace of God. And for those of you who don't know what grace is, grace is this. It's when you're given something you don't deserve. It starts with our forgiveness, but if you look through verses 4 through 9, there's multiple things. The spiritual gifts that we're given, the fellowship with Jesus. There's past grace because we've been forgiven. Those of you who are followers of Jesus already. There's present grace that he keeps us united to Christ. There's future grace that he promises he's going to come back. He's going to complete a work in us. If you skim through here, it's just grace, grace, grace. But I go back to verse 1. And I think about this, the very first word. If I'm the apostle Paul, look at the first word in this book. Paul. I wonder if Paul paused there and thought, I can't believe I'm an apostle. We know he says that in other places in the Bible. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 15. He says, I'm, and he said, I'm an apostle, but I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm the, the, the foremost sinner, the worst sinner, the chief sinner, depending on your translation. And I thought about that, and I thought, I don't, is Paul the worst sinner? Like, he killed Christians. Murder's a pretty big deal. It's in the top 10. Is he the worst? I remember I saw an article this week that reminded me of this. I told a story about Ted Bundy early on in my ministry at Southbridge. Stirred up some feathers. Here's why. Uh, because Ted Bundy professed at the end of his life that he was a follower of Jesus. Some Christians don't like that. For those of you who don't know who Ted Bundy is, he was an awful human being. He was a rapist, a serial killer, killed at least 30 women, some people say 50, some people say 100. And um, as serial killers go, and people that are interested in all that, it's a fascinating case study because of his psychotic behavior. As far as Christians go, it's divisive to talk about. I remember getting interested with in that story early on in my ministry and because of a mutual friend I ended up contacting an attorney who, who ended up going to visit Bundy and talk with Bundy multiple occasions ended up actually being a guy who baptized him in a drinking fountain at a prison so I remember sharing with our church about that one time and people being upset let me tell you something I don't know whether or not Bundy was a genuine follower of Jesus because I don't know if when he called upon Jesus if that was a genuine confession of faith or not I just can't know that about, I can only know about you just so you know but I know that God's grace is sufficient. And do you, know, do you know what gripped me when I was talking to that attorney about Bundy? Was this attorney who was a follower of Jesus Christ. His name was John Tanner. And John told me, he said, when I met Bundy, I got to baptize him, but I'm not the one who led him to Jesus. He said Bundy had already trusted Christ because the mother of one of the girls he had murdered was writing him letters sharing the love of Christ with him and extended forgiveness to him. Can I tell you something? That is someone who is gripped by God's grace because they can extend that grace. That's, what about you? What about your story? I think about the Apostle Paul. You see, some of your sin is scandalous sin. Some of you told me your stories. Some of your sin is very sterile sin. And some of you might be the ones that are more prone to think, I don't know, I don't know if God would forgive. It was the same grace that required to forgive you to forgive the most heinous, the foremost sinner. The Apostle Paul thinks it's him, and most of us should think it's us. If we're gripped by grace, we must understand the weight of our sin, that because of our sin, do you get this for a second? Some of you know this, you've heard this since you were like three. God's son had to die for you. Like not just a noble person, not, not just some religious teacher, like God's own son, your sin's so bad, God's son had to die for you until you understand the weight of your sin that the wrath of God was coming against you because of it, you can't be gripped by grace. See, here's the other reality. Just This should speak to you. Just that first word, Paul, Paul. That no matter how deeply broken you are, you are deeply loved. And so some of you here today might think, oh, this church thing, I'm just kind of, if they knew, no, God loves you. He's coming after you. And I imagine Paul, as he wrote these words, and he, you get to verse 4, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I imagine Paul probably went back to when he came to this city in Corinth. And we read about that in Acts chapter 18. So if you want to know the background of 1 Corinthians, read Acts chapter 18. And what happens there is after he's in Athens and he's speaking to these philosophers, he goes to, to Corinth. And if I'm Paul, I'm probably thinking, what a, what a strategic city to bring the gospel to. Like I remember when, when Shannon and I were moving here to Raleigh to bring the gospel to this area and thinking, we, we, thought about, we laid a map out, we thought about all the places we could go, California and pretty wild out there and New York City, the media's there, so maybe we could have an influence there. We wanted to move to a place that could have a huge amount of influence and one of the reasons why we moved here was because it was such a mobile place. Now that can be tough, like if you make friends with people and they come into town because of the hospitals or the universities or some, jo- and they get a job transferred and you're like, oh, I'm sad to see you go. But it's actually a strategic missional reason to come to a place because think about this somebody moves here to go to school do a research project for the hospital work for john deere pfizer whoever what a joke that pfizer and john deere and SAS are paying to send people all over the world as missionaries isn't that pretty amazing but here's what has to happen. The only way that really matters is you can't just be some normal old church and just like a place for people to kumbaya with one another. Their life, they have to have an encounter with the living God, be equipped to love and serve one another, and then be trained on how to engage their world for Jesus so that when they're sent out, they're like missionaries. If I'm Paul, when I, when I go to Corinth, that's how I'm feeling. These key trade routes, this mobile place. If I can bring the gospel here, there's people of all these different ethnicities. The gospel could spread from this place all over the known world. And so he comes there, but he gets discouraged and he's afraid to preach the truth. The apostle Paul, afraid to preach the truth. So much so that Jesus has to appear to him and say to him, Paul, don't be afraid. Here's why, I have many of my people in this city. Many people, and they need to hear about the grace of God. Do you think there are many people in RDU that need to hear about the grace of God? There are. And so then Paul writes, and as he's writing this in verse 4, I wonder if he thinks back to, if you flip over a couple pages to chapter 6, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? By the way, grace doesn't mean you don't tell the truth. This is some tough truth. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, he's going to hit on the unholy trinity of false gods they have here, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters Nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You don't think that had a whole bunch of people in that community? But listen to this. And such were some of you. But that's a contrast you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen? And and you know what else he's saying here? He's talking about this grace of God. What you were, you no longer are. You've been changed. These first verses, verses 4 through 9 here, they're talking about the identity. Of the, it's not based on what they're doing and living out practically. It's based on who they are positionally before God. Because of the grace of God, they've been washed. They've been cleansed. Been declared righteous, justified. Been sanctified, set apart for God's special work. They, they're no longer, these swindlers, no, even if they do greedy things, they're no longer the greedy. You know they do sexually immoral? You're no longer sexually immoral. You're, you're just behaving outside of your identity. It's because of the grace of God. But here's the reality. People that are gripped by grace don't go on sinning. Doesn't mean you never sin. I'm not saying that. Don't hear me wrong. But grace should then call us to a holy life. Think about when Jesus changes somebody's life. We confront sinful people all the time. I love the story of the woman that gets caught in the very act of adultery in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, what happens there's these men that catch her in the very act of adultery. The Old Testament says that she should be stoned to death. They come to Jesus and they're trying to trap Jesus. You can never trap Jesus. Just that's why. He wrote the word. He is the word. He wrote the word. You're not going to trick them about the Bible, okay? <laughs> and so they got Jesus there. They got this woman who's been caught in adultery. She's brought in the very act of adultery, the text says. Jesus gets down. And he writes in the sand, does all this stuff. There are all kinds of great details in that story. But here's one of the things I love the most. That Jesus says to them, he who's without sin cast the first stone. Now, it's true. She was caught in adultery, and it's true. The Bible says that's punishable by death. Not saying her sin was okay, but he's putting it back on them. What about your sin? And then, do you ever remember stuff based on like a, a fragrance, gasoline, or fresh cut grass, or something like that? Or a song will pop in your head, and all of a sudden you have memories from like, you don't know where they came from, or a sound. It says that those men dropped their stones one at a time. I wonder what that sounded like to that woman, to hear those stones drop. And they're not hitting her. But here's what I love about when John records that. You know what he says? He says, the oldest went first. And I don't know what your experience, this hasn't necessarily been my experience, but isn't it true that the people who are the oldest followers of Jesus, shouldn't they be the most gracious? Because they understand their sin the most. I hope that'll be true in our church. As some of you become senior saints, as you who are senior saints, you'd be the most gracious. But then what happens is Jesus says, none of them condemn you, then I don't condemn you. That's grace, by the way. She deserved to be stoned to death. That's what she earned. The wages of sin is death. Then he says, you're cool. Peace out. Keep doing what you're doing. That's not what it says. <laughs> Somebody in the front was like, no, no. <laughs> They're just disoriented. They're like, don't say that. Somebody's going to believe that. That's not what it says. It says he says, Go and sin no more. That's what Paul's saying. That's what, and so were some of you. But you were washed, you were justified, you are sanctified. He's got grace, past, present, future grace. When you're gripped by grace, it should change the way that you live. So for Paul, imagine how heartbreaking it was to write to these people, knowing about the grace of God and the grace that had worked in their lives, but then how they were living Here's something else for you to know about the book of Corinth as we lay this foundation. He wrote the book of Romans while he was in Corinth. And so imagine that, that he can look out his window and see the sexual immoralities he writes Romans chapter one. Some of you exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship creation rather than the creator. You give up natural, women giving up natural desires for unnatural desires, and men giving up natural desires for a woman, for unnatural desires for a man, and he talks about the judgment that will come, and while he's writing those words in Romans chapter 1, he can look out his window and see it happening. As the temple prostitutes come down, as the homosexuality's been running rampant through Corinth, he, he can see it happening. He also writes this in Romans, in Romans chapter 6, he says, what shall we say then? Are do we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. No, no, no. By the way, there's an immature view of grace out there that goes like this. I'm going to go ahead and sin because I know God's going to forgive me. That shows you're not gripped by grace. See, when you're gripped by grace, it leads to a holy life. He wants these people to be gripped by grace. Here's what Romans continues to go on to say. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, what he's talking about here is not the water baptism we celebrated last week. He's talking about real physical union with Jesus. The water baptism symbolizes that. But some of you last week, if you were here, we had nine people that got baptized last week in our our different services, and and you saw if it was up on the screen. One of the things I love is I love that y'all cheer, by the way, when people get baptized, because it's celebrating the life change that's happening. But if you remember seeing those people up on the screen, What will happen is the person who's baptized them, a lot of times you'll see them lean in and say something to them. And usually they're asking them, you know have you trusted Jesus as your savior? and Something about why they're getting baptized. And they'll say things like, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Many people, like the person I baptized last week, I said to them, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in a new way of life. It comes from this passage of scripture. Look what he says next. Romans chapter six, verse four. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. You see, that's grace. When we die to an old way, he gives you new life, second chance, new way of living. So then live according to that. What, what he's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, is not about what they're doing. It's about what God has done. That's grace. What he's done in gifting them, what he's done in saving them, what he's done in giving them fellowship with him. And here's the reality. Grace keeps calling you back. God's been doing some amazing work in our church. Specifically since we moved into this new campus, we've had people saved, which is awesome. I believe people have grown. I know that you've been spurred on to love and good deeds. But one of the amazing things that God's been doing, he's been calling people back to himself. People that have gotten away from church, gotten away from Jesus, have gotten reconnected with Jesus. And I had one woman, she told me I could share a story with you, she sent me an email back in December when she came back to church. She'd been a part of Southbridge for some time, and I won't read you the whole email because there's a bunch here, uh, but she told me I could share this. She said, nine years ago this month, talking about December, I accepted Jesus into my life, and her and her husband were part of our church for a long time. Her name's Teresa, and she got away from Jesus. Listen to what she said. She said, I wasn't expecting to raise my hand or check a box that day, but I did. Every person's relationship with Jesus starts off differently. Mine was wondrous Joy. My heart was filled immediately with joy. I shared with everyone I knew. I wanted others to feel how I did. And then she wrote, loved. For seven years, I immersed myself into serving, small groups, trying my hardest to be in the word daily and sharing Jesus. I surrounded myself with other believers. I leaned on Jesus through hardships, bankruptcy, and depression. I praised Jesus for all that he was. And she said, I still struggled. The struggle started winning. Where was that once euphoric feeling from so long ago, the joy? And she talks about some of the difficulties and small groups that she wasn't connected to now. And she said, I question my dedication daily. How could I share with these little impressionable minds, she's a mom, when I was feeling so lost myself. So I withdrew to myself. And she went into isolation. She said, I still believed in Jesus, but I stopped talking to him. I stopped surrounding myself with believers. I stopped feeling accepted. I stopped feeling loved. I felt lost for two years. She said, then something happened. Facebook of all things. See, it's not just evil. <laughs> she says, a non-believer reached out to me and asked for something I was not expecting. She was struggling with the violence in the world and asked if I could provide verses from the Bible for her to read to help her turning hate into love. Me? What did I know about this? I had to be the wrong person, Right? I have not been faithfully in the word, did not know where to begin, so I dusted off my Bible, asked the Lord to guide me, for, for I didn't know what I was going to do or what to find. My Bible opens to 1 Corinthians 13. Love. I cried after I read it. I felt shame. Jesus still loves me, even though I've been absent. I've done nothing to deserve that love. That's grace. It's always been Jesus. I prayed, I prayed for guidance to help me renew my relationship. I started so many years ago, I had failed at keeping. So she talks about coming back to Southbridge, a time of change. She said, I faltered, I questioned quite a bit. Many new faces, no familiarity, no small group for me to turn to, no sense of comfort, quite the challenge for someone who felt so lost. If I'm to connect other people to Jesus for life change, how do I connect myself? My first step was to renew my connection to Jesus. She goes on to talk about that. And the service that day, and she says, thank you for not judging, for not pressuring, and always being so accepting and kind. Teresa Hartigan. It's grace. Amen. See, here's the reality about being gripped with grace. Grace keeps, if you haven't been responsive to God's grace, it calls you back. You can't outrun God's grace. God's grace keeps calling, keeps coming. God's love, no matter how deeply flawed you are, you are deeply loved by God. And he keeps coming after you. So you'll be a people that are gripped by his grace. That then transforms how you live. That you live according to your identity. And that you wouldn't lose focus on then. Thinking about what she said here about being connected herself to Jesus for life change. Being focused then on fellowship with Jesus. That's our second point. If we want to be a great church, not only do we need to be people that are gripped by God's grace, we must be people that stay focused, that remain focused on fellowship with Jesus. Not just on Jesus, like we can metaphorically talk about, keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, but keep focused on our relationship and growing in that relationship, that fellowship with Jesus. You look at what happens here in this passage of Scripture. I read the first nine verses. If you go through the first ten verses, ten times in ten verses, the name Jesus Christ is mentioned. Now, I get it. Like, the whole Bible's about Jesus, right? And he's all over the place. But this is kind of overkill. Like, skim through this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's verse 1. You might want to underline it, those of you who mark in your Bibles. To the church of God who's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Then verse 2 still. Upon the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, And that, that grace was given to you by Christ Jesus, verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, verse 7, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, verse 10, I appeal to you brothers by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, this is about Jesus. Ten times in ten verses, we got the name Jesus Christ. Do you know why? Paul's trying to focus them on Jesus Christ. Do you know why? Because their focus has gotten off. There's something else that happens here. Between verses 9 and 10 is a huge contrast. There's a contrast word there in Greek. The English Standard Version and the NIV, they don't translate it. Some of your Bible translations, Revised Standard Version, they do translate it. They, They use the word now or But. Contrast. There's a big contrast between what's happening in verse 9 and what's happening in verse 10. Some of you might have a subtitle in your Bible. Right before verse 10 it says divisions in the church. Listen to this contrast. Verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Some of your Bibles. But now the ESV is just abrupt. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Here's the contrast. You go from fellowship to divisions. Fellowship with Jesus to divisions with one another. Here's what's happened for them. They've gotten distracted from their fellowship with Jesus Christ. They've taken their focus off of him, and here's where it goes to. It goes to ourselves, and it goes to our circumstances. And now we know their focus is off because in the next verse it says... What I mean is this, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Isn't that last one good? Paul's not saying it is good here. You've got these different divisions in the church, and you list these four different parties, and you're saying, some of you follow Paul, and Paul's not like, that's the right party. He's offended by this. So your eyes need to be on Jesus Christ. But wait, Christ is one of the the, the factions here, one of the, the divisions in the church here. Yeah, Those are people that are probably super pious. They're saying you guys are all divided amongst each other. We're just about Jesus. Have you ever met those people? By the way, they're the people that think they're the only ones going to heaven. We're going to talk about elitism and and, and legalism as we go through this book because it's two of the problems that are happening in this church. It's probably some of the people that are in this Christ group, some of the people that are in the Apollos group. Apollos is a guy. He's the second pastor of the Church of Corinth. First pastor of the Church of Corinth is Paul. Paul. We know Paul was not a very good preacher. He talks about it himself in the Bible. He was more of a blue-collar kind of guy. He's a tent maker. His, his ministry was associated with power ministry, with miracles that happened. And so people that were drawn to that were probably more drawn to Paul. Apollos, however, we know he was a great orator. And so the people, especially the Greeks in the audience that love philosophy, and it's not about Apollos, by the way, it's about them. It's pride. See who I, I must be pretty smart because the guy that I like is really smart. You see what happens here? With people in these divisions, they happen... In the church and they're coming here and people were so easily distracted i read some statistics this week about distraction and so the average office worker do you know how long they can focus on a task before they get distracted 11 minutes how long is your work day anyway 11 minutes the average student in a classroom can go two minutes <laughs> sorry teachers i apologize just the way that it is the average internet user looking on your screen on your laptop on your phone whatever it is guess how long 40 seconds Before you get distracted by something else that happens on that screen, 40 seconds. They they, they said, and I don't know how they got all this information and how they uh, tabulated all of it, but that in America we lose about $650 billion a year by distracted workers. That the the worst generations, the millennials, sorry, millennials, not trying to beat you up, it's just what the article said, the study showed, but it said all people, all generations, you know how often we check our emails if we work in an office? If you work in an office, not saying you're working on a construction site, but in an office, Thirty-six times an hour. Like, can I just tell you something? Like this isn't the Bible. Like just a life principle. If something really emergency like happens in your life, they're not going to email you. Okay? Like you don't need to know that bad. But we are distracted people. I ain't got any parents here? Any parents? Parents in this room? Like think about our kids. Do you ever send your kids to clean their room? Talk about distracted. I send my kids to clean their room. I'll come in there in an hour later. It's worse than when they started. It's like, I want you to put stuff away, not build a fort. Like, how do you have this big fort here? Like, all the blankets are out of the closet. Like, everything's up. And then you'll find, like, a suitcase sitting there. You haven't been on family vacation for, like, two months. but There's still a suitcase there. How, where do you get clean socks? I don't want to know. I'm just going back downstairs. Like, but then I think about my own life. And I do it, too. And it happens in churches. I was reading uh, an article this week, a blog that was put out by a guy named Tom Rainer. And he's a church consultant and a speaker. And he's talking about different things that churches fight over. And he, got, he said, forget like all the, the carpet colors and is the music too loud and the temperature of the room and all that kind of silly stuff. Everybody knows that. He put 25 of them out. Here's five of them I'll share with you. He says this. There was one church that got in a fight over the length of the worship pastor's beard. <laughs> I just want to know the verse. Like, I want to know what verse they were using on that one. <laughs> there was a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran-grape juice instead of grape juice. No, for real. I mean, somebody was bothered by that. Cran-grapes, they are cranberries getting in everything. It's a problem. An argument on whether the church should have deviled eggs <laughs> at the church meal. One <laughs> of the devil in. of want the devil to get a foothold. It's in the Bible. An argument over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing. <laughs> See what they did there? See that? Some of you, a number of you, probably a good number of you, have been in churches that have had stupid fights and have had splits. And can I tell you something? I don't know all the details of that, but I know what happened. They got their eyes off of fellowship with Jesus. Let me read you another quote. It's by a professor of spiritual formation at Regent College. I think we have it on the screen. It says, our spiritual condition is one of having spiritual ADD. We are more easily distracted from the important issues of our lives moment by moment. The nature of digital communication is that we are endlessly distracted. And do you know what happens when we take our eyes off Jesus? We look at our circumstances and we look at ourselves. Classic example is the Apostle Peter when he's walking on water. He walked on water, people. That's amazing. He's doing great until he starts looking at himself and looking at his circumstances. You want to be a great church? can't be focused on ourselves, focusing on circumstances. you got to focus on Jesus Christ, on your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because here's the reality. If you want unity in the church, you don't focus on unity. You focus on Jesus. Some of you were a part of our church back on June 10th. I preached a message from John chapter 17 to remind you of what that day was. It's the day we burned our mortgage. It's the first week that Covenant Church came and joined Southbridge Church. And I brought some people up on the stage, and I set one guy here, one lady here, and I had another person stand up here. The person up here was Jesus, just acting. And I told this person's story, and I made it radically different than this person's story, but what I showed was unity is also not uniformity. But that unity happens as we get closer to Jesus, we get closer to one another. What Paul's talking about here in this upwardly mobile community is not when he says we have the same mind. He's not saying that everybody agrees on every topic. He's saying that we're unified in Christ. You've got the same Savior, the same grace that has gripped your life. One Spirit, one Lord, one baptism. And what you're supposed to do, your life as a church community together, it's supposed to be a portrayal, not just of Jesus, but of the triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit, three distinct persons, one God. And community and unity, diversity and Unity. And that's what we're supposed to be a picture of. And Paul says, Some of you are following Paul, and some of you are following Cephas, that's a name for Peter, by the way. Some of you are following Apollos. Like, this is a mess. And to break the back of that kind of boasting, look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. After verse 12, when he says, Some of you follow Paul, and some of you follow Cephas, and some of you follow Christ, he says, Is Christ divided? He says, If people are going to come in there, you're supposed to be a picture of what he's like, and they look at you and they go, He's divided. It's a rhetorical question. He says, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized with the name of Paul? Here's the thing. We are easily distracted people. We were distracted by many things. Distracted by this building. Getting in this building could be a distraction. I don't even know what the arguments could become. How we use it, what the temperature is, whatever the thing. If husband's wife can't get along about the temperature in their house. How are they going to get along in a church with a bunch of people? Like, we're going to have problems. There's going to be, if we get our eyes off Jesus, we get argued argue about that. Programs. Can I tell you something about church programs? Just to generally, just for us to know. Every program throughout church history has a context and has a season, and that season ends at some point. And here's the problem. We keep hanging on to our program. It starts to fight against the resources of the church. The vision of the church becomes a distraction for the church. People, some people, like some some of you, do you follow Trump or Jesus? Do you follow Hillary or Jesus? Like, what's your... Trump didn't die for you. Some of you, some of you, some of the people have told me that some folks don't come to church when they hear that I'm not preaching. Let me tell you something. That's ridiculous. If I get hit by a bus, you can stop going to church here? I didn't die for you. Pastor Scott, I mean, he's British and that's cool. He didn't die for you. Pastor Dave, Pastor Seth, he's got the hipster thing going, but he didn't die for you. Good guys. Good, I'm not saying anything bad about these men. If you come to church because of the people, these people on a stage, really? Christ died for you. I should break the, the back of all boasting and people. And we're supposed to be a picture of the triune God through our unity. And that happens by focusing on fellowship with Jesus Christ. remember when I was a youth pastor. I go to speak to different youth groups. I remember I'd tell this story, and the story was about a little kid. Made-up story. Little kid's drawing a picture, and mom comes in and says, What are you drawing a picture of? Kid says, I'm drawing a picture of God. Mom says, but no one's ever seen God. They don't know what he looks like. The kid says, they will when I'm done with my picture. (laughs) Here's the reality there's a lot of people in RDU that need a picture of God. And we're supposed to be that picture. That happens when we're unified with one another as people that are gripped by God's grace. And we don't want to be like Earl Manigold. Wasted potential. God's given so many gifts in this church, so many grace stories in this church. If we get our eyes off of Jesus Christ and fellowship with him, it's so distracting, it could be a mess. And we're gonna talk about how to deal with some of those issues as we continue through this book. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and for you to open up our hearts. I I pray as we even just begin this study, you begin to stir in us. You begin to transform us into the church you desire for us to be, into the people you desire for us to be. God, you may have spoken individually to somebody today. I pray they wouldn't miss what you're saying to them. And you say it. You speak to their hearts. And maybe some of you, you just need to ask God, God, what do you want to speak to my heart today? Maybe you've never had God speak to you before. He can. He will. Maybe he's already spoken through his word. Maybe somebody here, you might need to begin a relationship with Jesus. You can do that by acknowledging your sin acknowledging your need for his grace to be given something you don't deserve you don't deserve to be forgiven but God offers you forgiveness through his son Jesus Christ who died for you who loves you reason he died for you is because without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sin and you can't just have a bull or a goat die for you that's just a cover-up you need to be washed clean and if you need to trust Jesus as your savior then ask him for forgiveness right now ask him to be your savior he'll take over your life And some of us, you were washed, you were cleansed, you've been justified and sanctified and glorified in Christ, and and today is a reminder of His grace in your life. May we be gripped by that grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.